Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Uh, I work a lot with kids. The psychological counseling I do, I work a lot with kids. Most of the work I do with kids actually ends up being work with parents. Uh, amazing as it might sound. Uh, and especially as, well, I don't know, I was going to say as the child is younger, but it's probably all the way up through adolescence and maybe even what we're really seeing in terms of legacy as the adult work that I do is a product of parenting. Uh, we call that socialization in more scientific and clinical sort of terms. But the old adage, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, may indeed be a very accurate statement. And consequently, when I work with children, adolescents, and maybe even then, some adults, younger, more than older, if only because through a process of elimination, the older you get, the less likely your parents are going to be around. We do family counseling, and particularly with the mom, the dad, if you don't prefer those very traditional sort of titles, then caretaker one and caretaker two. <laughs> or if it takes a village to raise a child, then three, four, five, six, and seven. What the parenting is all about is usually what you're going to see at least strong evidence manifest in what it produces, the child's behavior, the adolescent's behavior, the adult's behavior. Psychology today. And let me get my glasses on here so I can see. We're looking at, I believe it's July, August of 2023. Bad dog, <laughs> bad odor. Owners of aggressive dogs frequently engage in antisocial behavior themselves. A popular dog training philosophy decrees. There are no bad dogs, only bad owners. While the statement's veracity remains up for debate, a recent study may find some truth in the bad owner idea. The study analyzed reports from 374 aggressive dog biting incidents as well as data on the owner's behavior. During the incidents, 63% of owners provided no assistance to victims, 20% were aggressive toward them. Owners were also prone to antisocial behavior elsewhere in life. 17% had abused animals, 15% had engaged in antisocial behavior like shouting at strangers, and 7% had been reported for domestic violence. It's likely not as simple as antisocial owners deliberately raising aggressive dogs, warns study author Anika Van Herwijnen of Utrecht University. I apologize. I tried the best I could to get that out. Heredity and environmental factors have a hand in dog behavior. Human choice, however, does determine a lot for dogs, including how they're bred, trained, and treated. Antisocial humans may be unwilling or unable to make choices in their dog's best interest. And spotting warning signs early could help prevent bites before they occur. Stanley Corin, PhD, bad dog or bad owner. Owners of aggressive dogs frequently engage in antisocial behavior themselves. Psychology Today 
July, August 20 of 23. Now the author's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> he did not go there when it comes to parenting. But I think there's a bit of generalization that can be made, and though dogs are not children and children are not adult dogs, and dog parents are certainly not parents, but most of us kind of see the parallel pretty clearly. And with that, as we would extrapolate in that generalization or from that generalization, you could probably at least hypothesize, theorize, that the, the same or similarly the same might apply to parenting. And in that, not that dogs have the same brain power as do humans or that at some point all of us have a choice no matter what it is that we were either exposed to or how we were socialized or how we were brought up as children to make a decision to change that behavior. There's always an element of choice. It's not fatalistic. It's not deterministic. That's why psychology, psychological counseling, that's why psychologists, psychological counselors are in business to help because we know a lot of bad things sort of come from exposure, certainly during childhood, when we're all vulnerable, when we're all naive and innocent, but also when we all lack brain power really to fully exercise the choice that hopefully we will eventually realize we have adolescents and adults to do life a bit differently. But the whole idea about owners were also prone to antisocial behavior elsewhere in life. 17% had abused of animals. That's bad. 15% had engaged in antisocial behavior like shouting at strangers. And 7% had been reported for domestic violence. All of those bad. <laughs> but for me, the part of it that really is most disturbing outside of all of that bad, abused animals, <laughs> shouting at strangers, and domestic violence, worst of all, is that 63% of owners provided no assistance to victims. 20% were aggressive toward them. Now, again, I'm left to sort of speculate or offer theorem, theory, as to why I think that might be, especially since the article does not necessarily summarize the research when it would then come to possibly explaining those facts or findings. I think it's denial. <laughs> I think maybe it's denial as unconsciously people don't want to own it, especially when something bad has happened and should they have any empathy or perspective taking. Antisocials don't, but should they have any? Maybe they just don't want to admit it because it's so ghastly or so horrible that somebody would abuse an animal, somebody would otherwise shout strangers, or worse yet, commit domestic violence as we would presume with one's own family and children. That's an awful thing to admit to and own up to. But it's also possibly just the denial, or in some ways a measure of disassociation, which is denial extended. Denial taken to an extreme the person, even as possibly the victimization was taking place, just didn't deal with it. They compartmentalized it. They put it somewhere because it was so threatening, because it was so loaded with these emotions of fear, fight or flight, emotional thinking, which we would believe then has some tie into aggressive or antisocial behavior. 
searing one's conscience or losing one's ability to have empathy or perspective taking out of a history of significant, possibly even profound abuse. That's a pretty commonly held belief, or at least the theory is, is pretty commonly uh, held, uh, esteemed, that a lot of adult antisocial behavior comes just from that very thing. Abuse and abuse taken to such an extreme that there's no conscience left or there's such a disassociation that takes place that once whatever it is that might trigger it, the person no longer is in touch with their emotions and therefore can't be in touch with the victims. They at that point would be a perpetrator. It's not that they entirely, those that grow up with that degree of abuse in their childhood would always turn out to be perpetrators. Some of them continue to a pattern or continue to be in pattern victims. But in that same sort of a way, by the time that they're in the situation, presuming that they have not been able to see it, uh, awareness, insight sufficient to stay out of it, when they're triggered, they go into that place of disassociation where they're numb and with that have no sense of feeling and no ability to really have perspective and are subject to pretty much whatever the perpetrator would want to do and as perpetrators it's almost mechanistic they really don't operate with what we would otherwise call some sort of human regard and most people likewise I know I'm making a lot of generalizations, but I think they're at least solid enough. I could go ahead and say them in this way or present them in this way. Most people would say, if you're going to be mean to animals, you're probably going to be mean to humans. Uh, especially as with defenseless animals, which presumes not that dogs can't bite, but that they can't defend themselves in quite the same way humans do, particularly if the attack is with such force or vengeance as to result in abuse and domestic violence sort of proportions. So what am I saying? Just basically saying it's hard to work with parents because they can't see the abuse that's happened to them in a way that allows them to step outside of it long enough to see it objectively. And when I begin to call their awareness to the fact that, oh, well, this is an abusive pattern, it may have been so insidious, as within the family constellation, and then the socialization exposure, that they haven't even recognized the abusive dimensions to it, and they're just continuing what has been done to them, or what they have seen, or, again, socialized, what they have been taught. And in that, insight and awareness becomes necessary. How you present that is equally, at times, very tenuous, or we have to do it in some tenuous or cautious fashion. They brought the child in, which is not bad. Obviously, the child is showing evidence of some sort of extreme discomfort or disorder if they end up in a psychologist's office or psychological counselor's office. Uh, they're having some sort of notable difficulty or trouble. Uh, and depending on how extreme the symptoms are, then at least there's enough of an awareness when the parents look at the child and say, well, there's something wrong. Fix them. But then what I need to do is say, well, the evidence that seems to be presented suggests that you may have had some role in that. I'm not saying all childhood disorders 
are caused by poor parenting. I'm not saying that there's not genetic predispositions. I'm not saying that you can't inherit those. It's a double whammy when you think of it that way. There's the genetic predisposition that gets passed down generation to generation, parent to offspring, as well as the social learning. It's no wonder it's hard to break the cycle of abuse. But to help the child, adolescent, even adult child, the adult who's been brought up in that circumstance and they're in, maybe they're doing the same with their kids, maybe because of that they can't form even enough intimacy or trust, find enough intimacy or trust to form a solid relationship to proceed with having kids. Maybe they are just at some level very much aware having children might not be a good thing for them, but to help them heal, to do that work, insight has to be generated and it has to be done cautiously so as to not trigger. And what am I triggering if I don't do it carefully, tenuously? I'm triggering the, not only the risk of disassociation, but they'll never come back. Uh, they will sense that I'm blaming them, which I don't know that I'm not, but it's not in an accusatory, so much an accusatory way as it is, if you really want to make a change, if you really want to help your child, then I'm trying to help you see not only them objectively, but yourself. I'm trying to assist you in getting past your denial and as a defense mechanism that will run risk of opening you up to memories, especially if it does extend to that extreme of disassociation of abuse. We'll go through it slowly. We'll pace it. We'll do it with all the genuine positive regard and support that anybody possibly could extend to someone else. We'll do it without judgment, unless, of course, we need to follow a CPS report. And only say that because there are certain situations where individuals, if they're abusing the child by law, we're supposed to do that. We do that, not only supposed to, but that's not only ethically, but legally, we're bound to do that because we need to protect the child. But fortunately, that's only rare circumstances and situations, rare numbers wise. And for the most part, we are not put in that situation as therapists with engaging in the circumstance to have to file a report. I'm one of those individuals, though, that will give you full disclosure before I make the phone call. That's why I think that's so important, at least that the objectivity would allow me to present the fullness of the facts so that you would understand. This is why the report had to be made. You may not accept it if you're the parent. They may not accept it. But at the same time, though, at least they'll understand. Ah, there's something wrong and I can't do this anymore. And whatever CPS, Child Protective Services, findings will abide by those. And with that, they say, well, there's not abuse. That's fine. I'm just <laughs> supposed to report it. I'm obligated. Not only supposed to. I just keep saying that. Not only is it supposed to, I'm obligated to report it, even if I don't know for a fact it's existent, simply because sometimes, if not a lot of the times, that there are incidences of abuse and domestic violence. Not only is it manifest in terms of how people treat their pets, but it's 
manifest with the children, but it's not always so obviously manifest. And somebody really does need to go in there and get involved in the family dynamic and circumstance, intimately so, to know, is there abuse occurring? And to protect, as much could be, the child, adolescent, even adult abuse, (laughs) domestic violence. There's really no demographic or characterological boundary to that. Abuse is abuse. Aggression is aggression. Cruelty to animals. It's just not a good thing at any level as you might look at it. We just acknowledge for the sake of the podcast and the work I do and for those of you who may be listening and have a chance to give it some thought, abuse is bad, period. Now, there can be reasons for it, and we have to impact those. And if it's not too extreme, it may not verge on that kind of situation, uh, that element, as with domestic violence or abuse. But it can just be really bad parenting. And it is somewhat graded, or there's a degree. But even if it's a milder form of, I suppose, poor parenting or would verge on control or verge on something that somewhere down the line could become identifiable as abuse, we're wanting to stop it. That's why I can't avoid it. And that's why I believe it's ethically wrong for me just to treat the child, especially if I know the connection is with the parent. And I pretty much presume, as I stated at the very beginning of the podcast, it's always in some ways connected to the social environment. The parenting may not be the identified parent, caretaker one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but it is the parenting, the social situation. And it doesn't get better if we don't do it that way. So you do it with, again, positive regard. You do it with some concern. You make a determination whether this is, is reportable or bound to be reported by law. Ethics dictate that. If it's not, you still have to be truthful and say, this is wrong. And we need to do something about it because the trajectory, as it would then progress without some change in that style of parenting, control, dominance, however, emotional abuse, physical abuse, intimidation, Uh, If that doesn't change, it's not going to end anywhere but bad. First for the child, turn adolescent, turn adult. And then for any of those, as, as in any point along that continuum chronological age, of chronological age, as they might then enter into a family situation or parenting, it's not good. It's the generational curse. It's the thing that gets passed down generation to generation. And it needs to be arrested and stopped. Now, going back to the article, uh, I would just use that as an example. If there is any sort of denial, look at the article, or at least the context of the article, the subject, bad dog or bad owner, why wouldn't that extrapolate or be generalized or be capable of being generalized to parenting? There was a pause to give you a second to think about that question. There probably isn't 
any reason to think at least to give that some consideration. But if you're seeing a lot of really disordered behavior, something's not right. It may not be coming from the parent. It could be coming from an extended family. It could be coming from someone at school. I'm not saying it's always the parent. I'm just saying the parents have to be involved and we have to rule that out. And if we can, and we can make that a collaborative effort, working with the parents and making those adjustments, and it still it persists, then at least we've ruled that out and we can move on to other things. Again, my job isn't to point a finger and accuse, and I'm not going to do that without going through that decision-making process I tried to explain a little earlier on. Ethics and legal and what's reportable and what's not and where's the abuse and all of those things and ask the questions and get a good psychosocial history uh, background not only on the identified patient, which would be the child, adolescent, but their parents and then possibly even grandparents and understand that a bit better. If it's attributable to a, a behavioral health condition or a disorder, psychiatric condition or disorder, then it's still abuse, but at least we can begin to look at that and try to treat the condition or help others understand that's coming from something other than will alone on the part of the perpetrator, the person that's doing it, or even those that find themselves repeatedly subject to it. There's something not right, but that's what I do. That's why I'm making such a big deal today on the podcast. You can't just look at that situation and say, well, the kid's got a problem and fix them. It doesn't work that way. And hopefully I'm not the only one that would see it that way. And I look at that, again, within a family sort of systemic approach, and that's responsible. <laughs> Evaluation and diagnoses. I am supposed to do that. And if you're taking your child to a clinician who isn't engaging you or involving you, that's probably not protocol. And you might want to think about that as well. Bad dog or bad owner? I'm not saying it's always a bad owner, but I'm also very hesitant to say that, <laughs> generally speaking, dogs are just bad. And so there's got to be at least some awareness that we have some say about that, whether we're dog owners or parents. And that, once again, would be the challenge of the psychological counseling or the psychotherapy. That's, again, why we do, once more, why we do the podcast. <laughs> if you've listened thus far and hung in there with me, then I'm believing that I haven't offended you too much and I'm probably not so much at risk of you turning me off and you might even come back for the next podcast. But that's how insight is. We try to, again, whether it's on the podcast or in the therapy session, therapy office, we try to present it objectively. But when you do that and you're less about blame and more about fixing, or if there's anything in the way of culpability that needs to be established only under those most extreme CPS-like circumstances, uh, then as we talk about it, we discuss it, we explore it, don't be offended. We just want what's best for your child and we want what's best for you and believe that you brought your child to see us because you have that same primary motive, interest. And we want to help you. 
But again, that's what the podcast does. It's a way to reach out to you even should you not come in to see myself or someone who does what I do for a living. But at the same time, should you want to, Psychology Today provides a great resource online. Just go to their webpage. It's a directory of providers that have been vetted. They're licensed or certified in the particular disciplines and studies and states that they're in. And they're in that way vetted and credible. And any one of them you could reach out to should you want to not be so bound by geographical sort of boundaries. Uh, as long as that provider is licensed in the state that you reside, they could live in a completely different state. They could probably live anywhere in the world as long as they have hold or have licensure in the state you reside and could treat you from that remote location to where your residence is. So even so, if you don't like what's in your neighborhood, expand it. Uh, it's a worldwide web out there and you can find resources. But I sincerely do hope that we don't offend on the podcast and that as much as I choose psychology today as my reference, I do so on a couple of primary, for a couple of primary reasons, on a couple of levels. One is it's so easy to read. And secondly, most of the material is of interest and the type of things that we see most generally in our practice, my practice, uh, those that do what I do in our practice. And I think it's easy to understand. <laughs> and short of me messing up the words, the pronunciations, uh, hopefully as I read you the articles, uh, you agree. <laughs> it's not all that complicated, but it is truthful. It's factual. And it presents at least the best we know in some sort of theoretical context. Truth to be. And useful then. So should you want to come back, please join us again on Word with Dave Clay, uh, Dr. Michael David Clay, and uh, we drop the podcast every week. And uh, if you want to reach out to me specifically, you can go to that Psychology Today directory, but you can also email me at thewordhouse at frontier.com. You can call 304-523-WORD-9673, and uh, I'll be glad to get back with you. So, as I like to say, in the meantime, between now and when we get a chance to be together again, I want to wish you the best of not only health, but good mind health, and uh, look forward to the chance to uh, meet again, uh, discuss a very pertinent and relevant topic on our next podcast. Thanks.